Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 2, Chapter 3. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 3. Everything proceeding from the corrupt nature of man damnable. There are 14 sections. Section 1. The nature of man, in both parts of his soul, these, intellect and will, cannot be better ascertained than by attending to the epithet supplied to him in Scripture. If he is fully depicted, and it may easily be proved that he is, by the words of our Savior, quote, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, unquote, John 3.6, he must be a very miserable creature. For, as an apostle declares, quote, to be carnally minded is death, unquote, Romans 8.8. 8. Quote, it is enmity against God, and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Unquote. Is it true that the flesh is so perverse, that it is perpetually striving with all its might against God, that it cannot accord with the righteousness of divine law, that, in short, it can beget nothing but the materials of death? Grant that there is nothing in human nature but flesh, and then extract something good out of it if you can. But it will be said that the word flesh applies only to the sensual, and not to the higher part of the soul. This, however, is completely refuted by the words both of Christ and his apostle. The statement of our Lord is that a man must be born again, because he is flesh. He requires not to be born again with reference to the body, but a mind is not born again merely by having some portion of it reformed. It must be totally renewed. This is conformed by the antithesis used in both passages. In the contrast between the spirit and the flesh, there is nothing left of an intermediate nature. In this way, everything in man, which is not spiritual, falls under the denomination of carnal. But we have nothing of the spirit except through regeneration. Everything, therefore, which we have from nature is flesh. Any possible doubt which might exist on the subject is removed by the words of Paul, Ephesians 4.23, where, after a description of the old man, who, he says, quote, is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, unquote, he bids us, quote, be renewed in the spirit, unquote, of our mind. You see that he places unlawful and depraved desires not in the sensual part merely, but in the mind itself, and therefore requires that it should be renewed. Indeed, he had a little before drawn a picture of human nature, which shows that there is no part in which it is not perverted and corrupted. For when he says that the, quote, Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, 
having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, unquote, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. There can be no doubt that his words apply to all whom the Lord has not yet formed anew both to wisdom and righteousness. This is rendered more clear by the comparison which immediately follows, and by which he reminds believers that they, quote, have not so learned Christ, unquote. These words implying that the grace of Christ is the only remedy for that blindness and its evil consequences. Thus, too, had Isaiah prophesied of the kingdom of Christ when the Lord promised to the church that though darkness should, quote, cover the earth and gross darkness the people, unquote, yet that he should, quote, arise, unquote, upon it, and, quote, his glory, unquote, should be seen upon it. Isaiah 62. When it is thus declared that divine light is to arise on the church alone, all without the church is left in blindness and darkness. I will not enumerate all that occurs throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Psalms and prophetical writings, as to the vanity of man. There is much in what David says, quote, Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Unquote. Psalm 62, 9. The human mind receives a humbling blow when all the thoughts which proceed from it are derided as foolish, frivolous, perverse, and insane. Section 2. In no degree more lenient is the condemnation of the heart when it is described as, quote, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, unquote. Jeremiah 17.9 But as I study brevity, I will be satisfied with a single passage, one, however, in which, as in a bright mirror, we may behold a complete image of our nature. The apostle, when he would humble man's pride, uses these words, quote, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Unquote. Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. Thus, he thunders not against certain individuals, but against the whole posterity of Adam, not against the depraved manners of any single age, but the perpetual corruption of nature. His object in the passage is not merely to upbraid men in order that they may repent, but to teach that all are overwhelmed with inevitable calamity and can be delivered from it only by the mercy of God. As this could not be proved without previously proving the overthrow and destruction of nature, he produced those passages to show that its ruin is complete. Let it be a fixed point, then, that men are such as here described not by vicious custom, but by depravity of nature. The reasoning of the apostle that there is no salvation for man save in the mercy of God, because in himself he is desperate and undone, could not otherwise stand. I will not here labor to prove that the passages apply with the view of removing the doubts of any who might think them quoted out of place. 
I will take them as if they had been used by Paul for the first time, and not taken from the prophets. First, then, he strips man of righteousness, that is, integrity and purity. And, secondly, he strips him of sound intelligence. He argues that defective intelligence is proved by apostasy from God. To seek him is the beginning of wisdom, and therefore such defect must exist in all who have revolted from him. He subjoins that all have gone astray, and become as it were mere corruption, that there is none that doeth good. He then enumerates the crimes by which those who have once given loose to their wickedness pollute every member of their bodies. Lastly, he declares that they have no fear of God, according to whose rule all our steps should be directed. If these are the hereditary properties of the human race, it is vain to look for anything good in our nature. I confess indeed that all these iniquities do not break out in every individual. Still, it cannot be denied that the hydra lurks in every breast. For as a body, while it contains and fosters the cause and matter of disease, cannot be called healthy, although pain is not actually felt. So a soul, while teeming with such seeds of vice, cannot be called sound. This similitude, however, does not apply throughout. In a body, however, morbid, the functions of life are performed. But the soul, when plunged into that deadly abyss, not only labors under vice, but is altogether devoid of good. Section 3 here again we are met with a question very much the same as that which was previously solved. In every age there have been some who, under the guidance of nature, were all their lives devoted to virtue. It is of no consequence that many blots may be detected in their conduct. By the mere study of virtue they evinced that there was somewhat of purity in their nature. The value which virtues of this kind have in the sight of God will be considered more fully when we treat the merit of works. Meanwhile, however, it will be proper to consider it in this place also, insofar as necessary for the exposition of the subject in hand. Such examples, then, seem to warn us against supposing that the nature of man is utterly vicious, since, under its guidance, some have not only excelled in illustrious deeds, but conducted themselves most honorably through the whole course of their lives. But we ought to consider that, notwithstanding of the corruption of our nature, there is some room for divine grace such grace as, without purifying it, may lay it under internal restraint. For did the Lord let every mind loose to wanton in its lusts? Doubtless there is not a man who would not show that his nature is capable of all the crimes with which Paul charges it. Romans 3 compared with Psalm 14:3, etc. What? Can you exempt yourself from the number of those whose feet are swift to shed blood, whose hands are foul with rapine and murder? whose throats are like open sepulchres, whose tongues are deceitful, whose lips are venomous, whose actions are useless, unjust, rotten, deadly, whose soul is without God, whose inward parts are full of wickedness, whose eyes are on the watch for deception, whose minds are prepared for insult, whose every part and chart is framed for endless deeds of wickedness. If every soul is capable of such abominations, and the Apostle declares this boldly. It is surely easy to see what the result would be if the Lord were to permit human passion to follow its bent. No ravenous beast would rush so furiously, no stream, however rapid and violent, so impetuously burst its banks. And the elect, 
God cures these diseases in the mode which will shortly be explained. In others, he only lays them under such restraint as may prevent them from breaking forth to a degree incompatible with the preservation of the established order of things. Hence, how much soever men may disguise their impurity. Some are restrained only by shame, others by fear of the laws, from breaking out into many kinds of wickedness. Some aspire to an honest life, as deeming it most conducive to their interest, while others are raised above the vulgar lot, that, by the dignity of their station, they may keep inferiors to their duty. Thus, God, by his providence, curbs the perverseness of nature, preventing it from breaking forth into action, yet without rendering it inwardly pure. Section 4. The objection, however, is not yet solved, for we must either put Catiline on the same footing with Camillus, or hold Camillus to be an example that nature, when carefully cultivated, is not wholly void of goodness. I admit that the specious qualities which Camillus possessed were divine gifts, and appear entitled to commendation when viewed in themselves. But in what way will they be proofs of a virtuous nature? Must we not go back to the mind, and from it begin to reason thus? If a natural man possesses such integrity of manners, nature is not without the faculty of studying virtue. But what if his mind was depraved and perverted and followed anything rather than rectitude? Such it undoubtedly was if you grant that he was only a natural man. How then will you laud the power of human nature for good if, even where there is the highest semblance of integrity, a corrupt bias is always detected? Therefore, as you would not commend a man for virtue, whose vices impose upon you by a show of virtue, so you will not attribute a power of choosing rectitude to the human will while rooted in depravity. Still, the surest and easiest answer to the objection is that those are not common endowments of nature, but special gifts of God, which he distributes in divers forms, and in a definite measure to men otherwise profane. For which reason we hesitate not, in common language, to say that one is of a good, another of a vicious nature, though we cease not to hold that both are placed under the universal condition of human depravity. All we mean is that God has conferred on the one a special grace which he has not seen it meet to confer on the other. When he was pleased to set Saul over the kingdom, he made him, as it were, a new man. This is the thing meant by Plato when, alluding to a passage in the Iliad, he says that the children of kings are distinguished at their birth by some special qualities, God, in kindness to the human race, often giving a spirit of heroism to those whom he destines for empire. In this way, the great leaders celebrated in history were formed. The same judgment must be given in the case of private individuals, but as those endued with the greatest talents were always impelled by the greatest ambition, a stain which defiles all virtues and makes them lose all favor in the sight of God, so we cannot set any value on anything that seems praiseworthy in ungodly men. We may add that the principal part of rectitude is wanting, when there is no zeal for the glory of God, and there is no such zeal in those whom he has not regenerated by his Spirit. Nor is it without good cause said in Isaiah that on Christ should rest, quote, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, unquote, Isaiah 11.2. For by this we are taught that all who are strangers to Christ are destitute of that fear of God which is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111, verse 10. 
The virtues which deceive us by an empty show may have their praise in civil society and the common intercourse of life, but before the judgment seat of God they will be of no value to establish a claim of righteousness. Section 5. When the will is enchained as the slave of sin, it cannot make a movement towards goodness, far less steadily pursue it. Every such movement is the first step in that conversion to God, which in Scripture is entirely ascribed to divine grace. Thus Jeremiah prays, quote, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, unquote. Jeremiah 31.18 Hence, too, in the same chapter, describing the spiritual redemption of believers, the prophet says, quote, The Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he, unquote. Jeremiah 31.11 intimating how close the fetters are with which the sinner is bound so long as he is abandoned by the Lord and acts under the yoke of the devil. Nevertheless, there remains a will which both inclines and hastens on with the strongest affection towards sin. Man, when placed under this bondage, being deprived not of will but of soundness of will. Bernard says not improperly that all of us have a will, but to will well is proficiency. To will ill is defect. Thus simply to will is the part of man. To will ill the part of corrupt nature. To will well the part of grace. Moreover, when I say that the will deprived of liberty is led or dragged by necessity to evil, it is strange that any should deem the expression harsh, seeing there is no absurdity in it, and it is not at variance with pious use. It does, however, offend those who know not how to distinguish between necessity and compulsion. Were anyone to ask them, Is not God necessarily good? Is not the devil necessarily wicked? What answer would they give? The goodness of God is so connected with his Godhead that it is not more necessary to be God than to be good, whereas the devil, by his fall, was so estranged from goodness that he can do nothing but evil. Should anyone give utterance to the profane jeer that little praise is due to God for a goodness to which he is forced? Is it not obvious to every man to reply, It is owing not to violent impulse, but to his boundless goodness, that he cannot do evil? Therefore, if the free will of God in doing good is not impeded, because he necessarily must do good, if the devil, who can do nothing but evil, nevertheless sins voluntarily, can it be said that man sins less voluntarily because he is under a necessity of sinning? This necessity is uniformly proclaimed by Augustine, who, even when pressed by the invidious cavil of Celestius, hesitated not to assert it in the following terms, quote, Man through liberty became a sinner, but corruption ensuing as the penalty has converted liberty into necessity, unquote. Whenever mention is made of the subject, he hesitates not to speak in this way of the necessary bondage of sin. Let this then be regarded as the sum of the distinction. Man, since he was corrupted by the fall, sins not forced or unwilling, but voluntarily by a most forward bias of the mind, not by violent compulsion or external force, but by the movement of his own passion. And yet such is the depravity of his nature, that he cannot move and act except in the direction of evil. If this is true, the thing not obscurely expressed is that he is under a necessity of sinning. Bernard, assenting to Augustine, thus writes, quote, Among animals, man alone is free, and yet sin intervening, he suffers a kind of violence, but a violence proceeding from his will, not from nature. 
so that it does not even deprive him of innate liberty, unquote. For that which is voluntary is also free. A little after he adds, quote, Thus, by some means strange and wicked, the will itself, being deteriorated by sin, makes a necessity, but so that the necessity, inasmuch as it is voluntary, cannot excuse the will, and the will, inasmuch as it is enticed, cannot exclude the necessity, unquote. For this necessity is in a manner voluntary. He afterwards says that, quote, We are under a yoke but no other yoke than that of voluntary servitude. Therefore, in respect of servitude, we are miserable, and in respect of will, inexcusable, because the will, when it was free, made itself the slave of sin. Unquote. At length he concludes, quote, Thus the soul, in some strange and evil way, is held under this kind of voluntary, yet sadly free, necessity, both bond and free, bond in respect of necessity, free in respect of will, and what is still more strange and still more miserable, it is guilty because free and enslaved because guilty and therefore enslaved because free." Unquote. My readers hence perceive that the doctrine which I deliver is not new, but the doctrine which of old Augustine delivered with the consent of all the godly, and which was afterwards shut up in the cloisters of monks for almost a thousand years, Lombard, by not knowing how to distinguish between necessity and compulsion, gave occasion to a pernicious error. Section 6 on the other hand, it may be proper to consider what the remedy is which divine grace provides for the correction and cure of natural corruption. Since the Lord, in bringing assistance, supplies us with what is lacking, the nature of that assistance will immediately make manifest its converse, viz. our penury. When the Apostle says to the Philippians, quote, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, unquote. Philippians 1.6 There cannot be a doubt that, by the good work thus begun, he means the very commencement of conversion in the will. God, therefore, begins the good work in us by exciting in our hearts a desire, a love, and a study of righteousness, or, to speak more correctly, by turning, training, and guiding our hearts unto righteousness. And he completes this good work by confirming us unto perseverance. But lest any one should cavil that the good work thus begun by the Lord consists in aiding the will, which is in itself weak, the Spirit elsewhere declares what the will, when left to itself, is able to do. His words are, quote, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them." Unquote. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. How can it be said that the weakness of the human will is aided, so as to enable it to aspire effectually to the choice of good, when the fact is that it must be wholly transformed and renovated? If there is any softness in a stone, if you can make it tender and flexible into any shape, then it may be said that the human heart may be shaped for rectitude, provided that which is imperfect in it is supplemented by divine grace. But if the spirit, by the above similitude, meant to show that no good can ever be extracted from our heart until it is made altogether new, let us not attempt to share with him what he claims for himself alone. If it is like turning a stone into flesh when God turns us to the study of rectitude, everything proper to our own will is abolished, and that which succeeds in its place is holy of God. I say the will is abolished, 
but not insofar as it is will, for in conversion everything essential to our original nature remains. I also say that it is created anew, not because the will then begins to exist, but because it is turned from evil to good. This, I maintain, is wholly the work of God, because, as the Apostle testifies, we are not, quote, sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, unquote, 2 Corinthians 3.5. Accordingly, he elsewhere says, not merely that God assists the weak or corrects the depraved will, but that he worketh in us to will. Philippians 2.13 From this, it is easily inferred, as I have said, that everything good in the will is entirely the result of grace. In the same sense, the apostle elsewhere says, quote, It is the same God which worketh all in all. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 12.6 for he is not there treating of universal government, but declaring that all the good qualities which believers possess are due to God. In using the term, quote, all, unquote, he certainly makes God the author of spiritual life from its beginning to its end. This he had previously taught in different terms when he said that there is, quote, one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we by him, unquote. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, thus plainly extolling the new creation, by which everything of our common nature is destroyed. There is here a tacit antithesis between Adam and Christ, which he elsewhere explains more clearly when he says, quote, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them, unquote. Ephesians 2, 10. His meaning is to show in this way that our salvation is gratuitous, because the beginning of goodness is from the second creation which is obtained in Christ. If any, even the minutest ability were in ourselves, there would also be some merit. But to show our utter destitution, he argues that we merit nothing, because we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God had prepared. Again, intimating by these words that all the fruits of good works are originally and immediately from God. Hence, the psalmist, after saying that the Lord, quote, hath made us, unquote, to deprive us of all share in the work, immediately adds, quote, not we ourselves, unquote. That he is speaking of regeneration, which is the commencement of the spiritual life, is obvious from the context in which the next words are, quote, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture, unquote. Psalm 103. Not contented with simply giving God the praise of our salvation, he distinctly excludes us from all share in it, just as if he had said that not one particle remains to man as a ground of boasting. The whole is of God. Section 7. But perhaps there will be some who, while they admit that the will is in its own nature averse to righteousness, and is converted solely by the power of God, will yet hold that, when once it is prepared, it performs a part of acting. This they found upon the words of Augustine, that grace precedes every good work, the will accompanying, not leading, a handmaid and not a guide. The words thus not improperly used by this holy writer, Lombard preposterously rests to the above effect. But I maintain that, as well in the words of the psalmist which I have quoted, as in other passages of scripture, two things are clearly taught, viz., that the Lord both corrects, or rather destroys, our depraved will, and also substitutes a good will from himself. 
inasmuch as it is prevented by grace, I have no objection to your calling it a handmaid. But inasmuch as when formed again, it is the work of the Lord, it is erroneous to say that it accompanies preventing grace as a voluntary attendant. Therefore, Chrysostom is inaccurate in saying that grace cannot do anything without will, nor will anything without grace, as if grace did not, in terms of the passage lately quoted from Paul, produce the very will itself. The intention of Augustine in calling the human will the handmaid of grace was not to assign it a kind of second place to grace in the performance of good works. His object merely was to refute the pestilential dogma of Pelagius, who made human merit the first cause of salvation. As was sufficient for this purpose at the time, he contends that grace is prior to all merit, while, in the meantime, he says nothing of the other question as to the perpetual effect of grace, which, however, he handles admirably in other places. For in saying, as he often does, that the Lord prevents the unwilling in order to make him willing, and follows after the willing that he may not will in vain, he makes him the sole author of good works. Indeed, his sentiments on this subject are too clear to need any lengthened illustration. Quote, men, unquote, says he, quote, labor to find in our will something that is our own, and not God's. How can they find it? I wot not. Unquote. In his first book against Pelagius and Celestius, expounding the saying of Christ, quote, Every man, therefore, that hath heard, and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Unquote. John 6.45, he says, quote, The will is aided, not only so as to know what is to be done, but also to do what it knows. Unquote. And thus, when God teaches not by the letter of the law, but by the grace of the Spirit, he so teaches that every one who has learned, not only knowing, sees, but also willing, desires, and acting, performs. Section 8. Since we are now occupied with the chief point on which the controversy turns, let us give the reader the sum of the matter in a few and those most unambiguous passages of Scripture. Thereafter, lest any one should charge us with distorting Scripture, let us show that the truth which we maintain to be derived from Scripture is not unsupported by the testimony of this holy man, I mean Augustine. I deem it unnecessary to bring forward every separate passage of Scripture in confirmation of my doctrine. A selection of the most choice passages will pave the way for the understanding of all those which lie scattered up and down in the sacred volume. On the other hand, I thought it not out of place to show my accordance with a man whose authority is justly of so much weight in the Christian world. It is certainly easy to prove that the commencement of good is only with God, and that none but the elect have a will inclined to good. But the cause of election must be sought out of man, and hence it follows that a right will is derived not from man himself, but from the same good pleasure by which we were chosen before the creation of the world. Another argument much akin to this may be added, the beginning of right will and action being of faith. We must see whence faith itself is. But since Scripture proclaims throughout that it is the free gift of God, it follows that when men, who are with their whole soul naturally prone to evil, begin to have a good will, it is owing to mere grace. Therefore, when the Lord, in the conversion of his people, sets down these two things as requisite to be done, these take away the heart of stone, and give a heart of flesh. He openly declares that, in order to our conversion to righteousness, what is ours must be taken away, and that what is substituted in its place is of himself. Nor does he declare this in one passage only. 
For he says in Jeremiah, quote, I will give them one heart, and one way, that they may fear me forever, unquote. And a little after he says, quote, I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me, unquote. Jeremiah 32, verses 39 and 40. Again, in Ezekiel, quote, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them an heart of flesh, unquote. Ezekiel 11:19. He could not more clearly claim to himself and deny to us everything good and right in our will than by declaring that in our conversion there is the creation of a new spirit and a new heart. It always follows both that nothing good can proceed from our will until it is formed again, and that after it is formed again, insofar as it is good, it is of God and not of us. Section 9 With this view, likewise, the prayers of the saints correspond. Thus Solomon prays that the Lord may, quote, incline our hearts unto him to walk in his ways and keep his commandments, unquote. 1 Kings 8.58 Intimating that our heart is perverse and naturally indulges in rebellion against the divine law until it be turned. Again, it is said in the Psalms, quote, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, unquote. Psalm 119.36 For we should always note the antithesis between the rebellious movement of the heart and the correction by which it is subdued to obedience. David, feeling for the time that he was deprived of directing grace, Praise, quote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Unquote. Psalm 51.10 Is not this an acknowledgment that all the parts of the heart are full of impurity, and that the soul has received a twist, which has turned it from straight to crooked? And then, in describing the cleansing, which he earnestly demands as a thing to be created by God, does he not ascribe the work entirely to him? If it is objected that the prayer itself is a symptom of a pious and holy affection, it is easy to reply that although David had already in some measure repented, he was here contrasting the sad fall which he had experienced with his former state. Therefore, speaking in the person of a man alienated from God, he properly prays for the blessings which God bestows upon his elect in regeneration. Accordingly, like one dead, he desires to be created anew, so as to become, instead of a slave of Satan, an instrument of the Holy Spirit. Strange and monstrous are the longings of our pride. There is nothing which the Lord enjoins more strictly than the religious observance of his Sabbath, in other words, resting from our works, but in nothing do we show greater reluctance than to renounce our own works and give due place to the works of God. Did not arrogance stand in the way, we could not overlook the clear testimony which Christ has borne to the efficacy of his grace. Quote, I, unquote, said he, quote, am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman, unquote. Quote, if the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me, unquote. John 15, verses 1 and 4. If we can no more bear fruit of ourselves than a vine can bud when rooted up and deprived of moisture, there is no longer any room to ask what the aptitude of our nature is for good. There is no ambiguity in the conclusion, quote, For without me ye can do nothing, unquote. He says not that we are too weak to suffice for ourselves, but, by reducing us to nothing, he excludes the idea of our possessing any, even the least, ability. If, 
when engrafted into Christ, we bear fruit like the vine which draws its vegetative power from the moisture of the ground and the dew of heaven and the fostering warmth of the sun, I see nothing in a good work which we can call our own without trenching upon what is due to God. It is vain to have recourse to the frivolous camel, that the sap and the power of producing are already contained in the vine, and that, therefore, instead of deriving everything from the earth or the original root, it contributes something of its own. Our Savior's words simply mean that when separated from him, we are nothing but dry, useless wood, because when so separated, we have no power to do good, as he elsewhere says, quote, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Unquote. Matthew 15:13. Accordingly, in the passage already quoted from the Apostle Paul, he attributes the whole operation to God. Quote, it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Unquote. Philippians 2.13 The first part of a good work is the will. The second is vigorous effort in the doing of it. God is the author of both. It is therefore robbery from God to arrogate anything to ourselves either in the will or the act. Were it said that God gives assistance to a weak will, something might be left us. But when it is said that he makes the will, everything good in it is placed without us. Moreover, since even a good will is still weighed down by the burden of the flesh and prevented from rising, it is added that, to meet the difficulties of the contest, God supplies the persevering effort until the effect is obtained. Indeed, the apostle could not otherwise have said, as he elsewhere does, that, quote, it is the same God which worketh all in all, unquote. 1 Corinthians 12, 6 words comprehending, as we have already observed, section 6, the whole course of the spiritual life. For which reason David, after praying, quote, teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth, unquote, adds, quote, unite my heart to fear thy name, unquote. Psalm 86, 11. By these words intimating that even those who are well affected are liable to so many distractions that they easily become vain and fall away, if not strengthened to persevere. And hence, in another passage, after praying, quote, Order my steps in thy word, unquote, he requests that strength also may be given him to carry on the war. Quote, Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Unquote. Psalm 119, verse 133. In this way the Lord both begins and perfects the good work in us, so that it is due to him first that the will conceives a love of rectitude, is inclined to desire, is moved and stimulated to pursue it. Secondly, that this choice, desire, and endeavor fail not, but are carried forward to effect. And lastly, that we go on without interruption and persevere even to the end. Section 10 this movement of the will is not of that description which was for many ages taught and believed, viz. a movement which thereafter leaves us the choice to obey or resist it, but one which affects us efficaciously. We must therefore repudiate the oft-repeated sentiment of Chrysostom, quote, whom he draws, he draws willingly, unquote, insinuating that the Lord only stretches out his hand and waits to see whether we will be pleased to take his aid. We grant that, as man was originally constituted, he could incline to either side. But since he has taught us by his example how miserable a thing free will is, if God works not in us to will and to do, of what use to us were grace imparted in such scanty measure?
Nay, by our own ingratitude, we obscure and impair divine grace. The Apostle's doctrine is not that the grace of a good will is offered to us if we will accept of it, but that God himself is pleased so to work in us as to guide, turn, and govern our heart by his Spirit, and reign in it as his own possession. Ezekiel promises that a new spirit will be given to the elect, not merely that they may be able to walk in his precepts, but that they may really walk in them. Ezekiel 11:19 and 36:27 and the only meaning which can be given to our Savior's words, quote, Every man, therefore, that hath heard and learned of the Father, cometh unto me, unquote, John 6.45, is that the grace of God is effectual in itself. This Augustine maintains in his book, De Predestination Sancta. This grace is not bestowed on all promiscuously, according to the common brocard, Avacum, if I mistake not, that it is not denied to any one who does what in him lies. Men are indeed to be taught that the favor of God is offered without exception to all who ask it. But since those only begin to ask whom heavenly grace inspires, even this minute portion of praise must not be withheld from him. It is the privilege of the elect to be regenerated by the Spirit of God and then placed under his guidance and government. Wherefore, Augustine justly derides some who arrogate to themselves a certain power of willing, as well as censures others who imagine that that which is a special evidence of gratuitous election is given to all. He says, quote, Nature is common to all, but not grace. Unquote. And he calls it a showy acuteness, quote, which shines by mere vanity, when that which God bestows on whom he will is attributed generally to all. Unquote. Elsewhere he says, quote, How came you? By believing. Fear, lest by arrogating to yourself the merit of finding the right way, you perish from the right way. I came, you say, by free choice, came by my own will. Why do you boast? Would you know that even this was given you? Hear Christ exclaiming, Here, quote, No man cometh unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Close, inner quote, unquote. And from the words of John, chapter 6, verse 44, he infers it to be an incontrovertible fact that the hearts of believers are so effectually governed from above that they follow with undeviating affection. Quote, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. Unquote. 1 John 3, 9. That intermediate movement which the sophists imagine, a movement which everyone is free to obey or to reject, is obviously excluded by the doctrine of effectual perseverance. Section 11. As to perseverance, it would undoubtedly have been regarded as the gratuitous gift of God had not the very pernicious error prevailed that it is bestowed in proportion to human merit, according to the reception which each individual gives to the first grace this having given rise to the idea that it was entirely in our own power to receive or reject the offered grace of God, that idea is no sooner exploded than the error founded on it must fall. The error, indeed, is twofold, for, besides teaching that our gratitude for the first grace and our legitimate use of it is rewarded by subsequent supplies of grace, its abettors add that, after this, grace does not operate alone but only cooperates with ourselves. As to the former, we must hold that the Lord, while he daily enriches his servants, 
and loads them with new gifts of his grace, because he approves of and takes pleasure in the work which he has begun, finds that in them which he may follow up with large measures of grace. To this effect are the sentences, quote, To him that hath shall be given, unquote. Quote, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things, unquote. Matthew 25, verses 21, 23, 29, and Luke 19, verses 17 and 26. But here two precautions are necessary. It must not be said that the legitimate use of the first grace is rewarded by subsequent measures of grace, as if man rendered the grace of God effectual by his own industry. Nor must it be thought that there is any such remuneration as to make it cease to be the gratuitous grace of God. I admit, then, that believers may expect, as a blessing from God, that the better the use they make of previous, the larger the supplies they will receive of future grace. But I say that even this use is of the Lord, and that this remuneration is bestowed freely of mere good will. The trite distinction of operating and cooperating grace is employed no less sinisterly than unhappily. Augustine indeed used it, but softened it by a suitable definition, viz., that God, by cooperating, perfects what he begins by operating, that both graces are the same, but obtain different names from the different manner in which they produce their effects. Whence it follows that he does not make an apportionment between God and man, as if a proper movement on the part of each produced a mutual concurrence. All he does is to mark a multiplication of grace. To this effect, accordingly, he elsewhere says that in man good will precedes many gifts from God, but among these gifts is this good will itself. Whence it follows that nothing is left for the will to arrogate as its own. This Paul has expressly stated, for after saying, quote, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do, unquote, he immediately adds, quote, Of his good pleasure, unquote. Philippians 2.13, indicating by this expression that the blessing is gratuitous. As to the common saying that after we have given admission to the first grace, our efforts cooperate with subsequent grace, this is my answer. If it is meant that after we are once subdued by the power of the Lord to the obedience of righteousness, we proceed voluntarily and are inclined to follow the movement of grace, I have nothing to object. For it is most certain that where the grace of God reigns, there is also this readiness to obey. And whence this readiness? But just that the Spirit of God, being everywhere consistent with himself, after first begetting a principle of obedience, cherishes and strengthens it for perseverance. If, again, it is meant that man is able of himself to be a fellow laborer with the grace of God, I hold it to be a most pestilential delusion. Section 12. In support of this view, some make an ignorant and false application of the Apostle's words, quote, I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15.10 The meaning they give them is, that as Paul might have seemed to speak somewhat presumptuously in preferring himself to all the other apostles, he corrects the expression so far by referring the praise to the grace of God, but he at the same time calls himself a cooperator with grace. It is strange that this should have proved a stumbling block to so many writers, otherwise respectable. The Apostle says, not that the grace of God labored with him so as to make him a co-partner in the labor. He rather transfers the whole merit of the labor to grace alone, by thus modifying his first expression, quote, It was not I, unquote, says he, 
quote, that labored but the grace of God that was present with me, unquote. Those who have adopted the erroneous interpretation have been misled by an ambiguity in the expression, or rather by a preposterous translation in which the force of the Greek article is overlooked. For to take the words literally, the apostle does not say that grace was a fellow worker with him, but that the grace which was with him was sole worker. And this is taught not obscurely, though briefly, by Augustine when he says, quote, Good will in man precedes many gifts from God, but not all gifts, saying that the will which precedes is itself among the number, unquote. He adds the reason, quote, For it is written, quote, The God of my mercy shall prevent me. Close inner quote. Psalm fifty nine ten and inner quote, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Close inner quote. Psalm twenty three six. It prevents him that is unwilling and makes him willing. It follows him that is willing that he may not will in vain. Close quote. To this Bernard assents, introducing the church as praying thus quote, Draw me who am in some measure unwilling and make me willing. Draw me who am sluggishly lagging, and make me run. Unquote. Section 13. Let us now hear Augustine in his own words, lest the Pelagians of our age, I mean the sophists of the Sorbonne, charge us after their want with being opposed to all antiquity. In this, indeed, they imitate their father Pelagius, by whom of old a similar charge was brought against Augustine in the second chapter of his treatise, De Corruption et Gratia. Addressed to Valentinus, Augustine explains at length what I will state briefly, but in his own words, that to Adam was given the grace of persevering in goodness if he had the will. To us it is given to will, and by will overcome concupiscence, that Adam therefore had the power if he had the will, but did not will to have the power, whereas to us is given both the will and the power, that the original freedom of man was to be able not to sin, but that we have a much greater freedom, viz., not to be able to sin, and lest it should be supposed, as Lombard erroneously does, that he is speaking of the perfection of the future state, he shortly after removes all doubt when he says, quote, For so much is the will of the saints inflamed by the Holy Spirit, that they are able, because they are willing, and willing, because God worketh in them so to will, unquote. For if in such weakness, in which, however, to suppress pride, strength must be made perfect, their own will is left to them in such sense that, by the help of God, they are able if they will, while at the same time God does not work in them so as to make them will. Among so many temptations and infirmities, the will itself would give way, and consequently they would not be able to persevere. Therefore, to meet the infirmity of the human will, and prevent it from failing, how weak soever it might be, divine grace was made to act on it inseparably and uninterruptedly. Augustine, next entering fully into the question, how our hearts follow the movement when God affects them, necessarily says, indeed, that the Lord draws men by their own wills, wills, however, which he himself has produced. We have now an attestation by Augustine to the truth which we are specially desirous to maintain, viz., that the grace offered by the Lord is not merely one which every individual has full liberty of choosing to receive or reject, but a grace which produces in the heart both choice and will, so that all the good works which follow after are its fruit and effect, the only will which yields obedience being the will which grace itself has made. In another place, Augustine uses these words, quote, Every good work in us is performed only by grace, unquote. Section 14. 
in saying elsewhere that the will is not taken away by grace, but out of bad is changed into good, and after it is good is assisted, he only means that man is not drawn as if by an extraneous impulse without the movement of the heart, but is inwardly affected so as to obey from the heart. Declaring that grace is given specially and gratuitously to the elect, he writes in this way to Boniface, quote, We know that divine grace is not given to all men, and that to those to whom it is given, it is not given either according to the merit of works, or according to the merit of the will, but by free grace. In regard to those to whom it is not given, we know that the not giving of it is a just judgment from God, unquote. In the same epistle, he argues strongly against the opinion of those who hold that subsequent grace is given to human merit as a reward for not rejecting the first grace. For he presses Pelagius to confess that gratuitous grace is necessary for us for every action, and that merely from the fact of its being truly grace, it cannot be the recompense of works. But the matter cannot be more briefly summed up than in the eighth chapter of his treatise, De Corruption et Gratia where he shows, first, that human will does not by liberty obtain grace, but by grace obtains liberty, secondly, that by means of the same grace the heart being impressed with a feeling of delight is trained to persevere and strengthened with invincible fortitude, thirdly, that while grace governs the will it never falls, but when grace abandons it, it falls forthwith, fourthly, that by the free mercy of God the will is turned to good, and when turned, perseveres. Fifthly, that the direction of the will to good, and its constancy after being so directed, depend entirely on the will of God, and not on any human merit. Thus the will, free will if you choose to call it so, which is left to man, is, as he in another place, describes it, a will which can neither be turned to God, nor continue in God, unless by grace a will which, whatever its ability may be, derives all that ability from grace. Chapter 4. How God Works in the Hearts of Men There are eight sections. Section 1. That man is so enslaved by the yoke of sin that he cannot of his own nature aim at good either in wish or actual pursuit has, I think, been sufficiently proved. Moreover, a distinction has been drawn between compulsion and necessity, making it clear that man, though he sins necessarily, nevertheless sins voluntarily. But since, from his being brought into bondage to the devil, it would seem that he is actuated more by the devil's will than his own, it is necessary first to explain what the agency of each is, and then solve the question, whether, in bad actions, anything is to be attributed to God, Scripture intimating that there is some way in which he interferes. Augustine, in Psalm 31 and 33, compares the human will to a horse preparing to start and God and the devil, the writers. Quote, if God mounts, he, like a temperate and skillful rider, guides it calmly, urges it when too slow, reins it in when too fast, curbs its forwardness and overaction, checks its bad temper, and keeps it on the proper course. But if the devil has seized the saddle, like an ignorant and rash rider, he hurries it over broken ground, drives it into ditches, dashes it over precipices, spurs it into obstinacy or fury." Unquote. With this simile, since a better does not occur, we shall for the present be contented. When it is said, then, 
that the will of the natural man is subject to the power of the devil and is actuated by him the meaning is not that the will while reluctant and resisting is forced to submit as masters oblige unwilling slaves to execute their orders but that fascinated by the impostures of satan it necessarily yields to his guidance and does him homage those whom the Lord favors, not with the direction of his spirit, he, by righteous judgment, consigns to the agency of Satan. Wherefore the apostle says that, quote, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believed not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them, unquote. And in another passage, he describes the devil as, quote, The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, unquote, Ephesians 2.2. The blinding of the wicked, and all the iniquities consequent upon it, are called the works of Satan, works the cause of which is not to be sought in anything external to the will of man, in which the root of the evil lies, and in which the foundation of Satan's kingdom, in other words sin, is fixed. Section 2. The nature of the divine agency in such cases is very different. For the purpose of illustration, let us refer to the calamities brought upon holy Job by the Chaldeans. They, having slain his shepherds, carry off his flocks. The wickedness of their deed is manifest, as is also the hand of Satan, who, as the history informs us, was the instigator of the whole. Job, however, recognizes it as the work of God, saying that what the Chaldeans had plundered, quote, the Lord, unquote, had, quote, taken away, unquote. How can we attribute the same work to God? to Satan, and to man, without either excusing Satan by the interference of God, or making God the author of the crime. This is easily done if we look first to the end, and then to the mode of acting. The Lord designs to exercise the patience of his servant by adversity. Satan's plan is to drive him to despair, while the Chaldeans are bent on making unlawful gain by plunder. Such diversity of purpose makes a wide distinction in the act. In the mode, there is not less difference. The Lord permits Satan to afflict his servant. The Chaldeans, who had been chosen as the ministers to execute the deed, he hands over to the impulses of Satan, who, pricking on already depraved Chaldeans with his poisoned darts, instigates them to commit the crime. They rush furiously on to the unrighteous deed and become its guilty perpetrators. Here Satan is properly said to act in the reprobate, over whom he exercises his sway, which is that of wickedness. God also is said to act in his own way, because even Satan, when he is the instrument of divine wrath, is completely under the command of God, who turns him as he will in the execution of his just judgments. I say nothing here of the universal agency of God, which, as it sustains all the creatures, also gives them all their power of acting. I am now speaking only of that special agency which is apparent in every act. We thus see that there is no inconsistency in attributing the same act to God, to Satan, and to man, while, from the difference in the end and mode of action, the spotless righteousness of God shines forth at the same time that the iniquity of Satan and of man is manifested in all its deformity. Section 3 Ancient writers sometimes manifest a superstitious dread of making a simple confession of the truth in this matter, from a fear of furnishing impiety with a handle for speaking irreverently of the works of God. While I embrace such soberness with all my heart, I cannot see the least danger in simply holding what Scripture delivers. Even Augustine was not always free from this superstition, as when he says, that blinding and hardening have respect not to the operation of God, but to prescience. 
But this subtlety is repudiated by many passages of Scripture, which clearly show that the divine interference amounts to something more than prescience. And Augustine himself, in his book against Julian, contends at length that sins are manifestations not merely of divine permission or patience, but also of divine power, that thus former sins may be punished. In like manner, what is said of permission is too weak to stand. God is very often said to blind and harden the reprobate, to turn their hearts, to incline and impel them, as I have elsewhere fully explained. Book 1, Chapter 18 the extent of this agency can never be explained by having recourse to prescience or permission. We therefore hold that there are two methods in which God may so act. When his light is taken away, nothing remains but blindness and darkness. When his spirit is taken away, our hearts become hard as stones. When his guidance is withdrawn, we immediately turn from the right path, and hence he is properly said to incline harden, and blind those whom he deprives of the faculty of seeing, obeying, and rightly executing. The second method, which comes much nearer to the exact meaning of the words, is when executing his judgments by Satan as the minister of his anger. God both directs men's counsels, and excites their wills, and regulates their efforts as he pleases. Thus, when Moses relates that Sion, king of the Amorites, did not give the Israelites a passage, because the Lord, quote, had hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, unquote, he immediately adds the purpose which God had in view, viz., that he might deliver him into their hand. Deuteronomy 2.30 As God had resolved to destroy him, the hardening of his heart was the divine preparation for his ruin. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials.
We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.